0: in the 11FS offices in London for episode 89 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you Sibo Holt Bitcoin Futures and Finance to the Moon. And lastly, of course, Deloitte puts ASX at Checkmate. All this and more on today's Blockchain Insider. Alrighty, I'm Simon Taylor. I'm back in the hot seat today. It was a very, very hot seat last week. Colin, uh, how how was that show last week? Fire emoji.
1: I had a lot of fun, um, as as you can tell. Uh, as so did many other people in the room. Uh, we'll see how their their corporate PR departments felt afterwards. Uh.
0: It's um, going to be an interesting one. If you haven't heard episode 88, go back and check out Fire Emoji. Uh, and, and what I like about it is there was a real debate. There were people really putting challenges on either side of the table. So if you want a proper, proper debate where people get the knives out and people really go for it, then then that's the one to want to check out.
1: I, I had to physically restrain Rick Burton at one point.
0: Which <laughs> is fantastic. He's usually so calm. I don't know yeah, what he usually. did to. Yeah, Andy. just
1: too much hot But sauce. enough about
0: last week's show. Let's get on with this week's. Um, first story this week comes from Bloomberg.com. And Apparently, the hottest crypto coins massive rally echoes Bitcoin's glory days. So um, this is about Binance and their Binance coin. Um, but apparently, its market cap's gone from uh, around about $750 million to over $2 billion this year. Um, BNB, of course, is tied to the company's performance. Um, and the company spends 20% of its profits each quarter buying back and destroying BNB. So let's let's get this right. Um, Binance, of course, Colin, uh, one of the most well-known exchanges um, uh, based somewhere in the world where you can buy crypto for crypto. You take your Bitcoin and you can buy other cryptos there. Um, it's really, really popular, has scaled, has become one of the top exchanges in the world, but they've always had their own coin that's sort of their their backing currency of not just the platform, but it seems to be doing a lot more for them now.
1: Yeah, so I guess the original idea with BNB was um, on these platforms, when you pay fees, you you would use BNB to pay those fees. Um, they announced, and we covered it a, w- a while ago, um, their, their intentions were to decentralize themselves. Um, so in addition to just being this institution that nobody's really sure where it's set up, they decided to register themselves in like 10 jurisdictions, uh, including places like Gibraltar and Malta and uh, Hong Kong, wherever else. Um, and and the other thing they they've been trying to do is set up their own uh, blockchain that's specifically there for the purposes of listing and doing decentralized exchanges. Um, BNB, of course, is envisaged to be uh, kind of the backbone of that. Uh, the idea is uh, it's it's scarce like most other cryptocurrencies, um, but rather than other ones, uh, this one as people use it and pay fees some of that will go to be and go to Binance the company and they'll take a portion of those and just rip them up and shred them uh, which hopefully should make them more scarce and make the price go up
0: which is interesting um if you think about that in a sort of financial markets context or even just, you know, um, stock market context, like if this were shares in a company and somebody were spending their profits or, or, you know, like, okay, so this transactional side of it that you just described is a little bit different. As uh, as you're transacting, a little bit of it gets destroyed. Fair enough. But also um, their profits. So if they have a profitable quarter, 20% of that profit goes to buying their own coin that they issued. That would not be dissimilar to you see a lot of share buybacks. Big companies uh, use profits to buy back their own shares, which grows the value of those shares because they've now suddenly become a lot more scarce, which, which begs the question. Doesn't that make it feel more and more like a security? There's one issue of it. They're doing something that feels like a share buyback. Um, Of course, the the CEO, um, Zhang Zhao, said, um, uh, I don't think that there's any regulation against destroying assets you have yourself. In the worst case, we can stop the burning process. But I don't know that that answers the fundamental question, is this a security? Colin, where do you stand on this one?
1: Uh, That sounds like a very political answer, and not being a lawyer, I I won't directly opine, but yes, I will agree with your statement that um, share buybacks work functionally in a very similar fashion.
0: Uh, Indeed, and I guess... that sort of increase of something that I am the majority owner of, that I issued, that I benefit from, um, you know, like the increase in the the asset value from burning it and making it more scarce with my own profits means I'm growing the value of something I hold most of. Like it's it all starts to feel quite circular. Um, is there a contrarian argument to this that, um, that somehow these things are uh, useful for something other than making the lines of the pockets of the Binance people richer?
1: I I mean, I guess you could argue that if and when a decentralized exchange slash blockchain built around uh, BNB uh, were ever launched, uh, it it could be a utility token of sorts. Um, How a regulator would actually, or I guess a court would actually Classify that still up for debate in in many jurisdictions. I think within Europe, uh, it's not just, we don't have the equivalent of a Howey test, but uh, I I would have a hard time wrapping my mind around how this would not be considered a financial instrument for MIFID two purposes, but I'm not a lawyer.
0: (laughs) And, and of course, stepping back, of course, if you work in a bank, if it's a MIFID II instrument, that implies, of course, it comes with a whole swathe of regulation and a whole swathe of reporting that you have to do. And there's a lot of listeners who work in financial markets who immediately shrivel once, uh, you know, kind of you've got to, oh, it's MIFID II, right, so I have to do all of these things. I have to, uh, and, you know, that comes with a lot of uh, things uh, alongside it
1: yeah, and I think I think for financial industry, I mean yeah, there's lots of things. but uh, I mean, that's the business if you work on a trading floor uh, or around a trading floor that you have to deal with. It's just that these things were inherently set up to avoid that, um, and they have no institutional knowledge of how to deal with that, um nor have they ever gone out and tried to do it. But as a first stage, I think um, uh, knowing who are the beneficial owners of these things is probably something that will become a requirement at some point in the future.
0: Alrighty. Uh, any lessons you'd take from this if you were interested in the subject of tokens and tokenization? Uh, yeah, wait wait for things to pan out a little bit
1: more or at least uh, be a bit more cautious and, and figure out what you're doing before you go balls in.
0: What a crazy idea. Figure out what you're doing before you go all at something. Um, All right. Story from Coindesk.com. Seems like somebody else is taking that wait-and-see approach. Citibank have scrapped their plan for a JPM coin-like bank-backed sort of crypto asset. Um, So the bank discussed the idea for a bank-backed token back in 2015. But ultimately, it's decided that other technologies provide more effective and efficient solutions. Wow, that's crazy. Who would have seen that one coming, Colin? Um, uh, not, certainly not me. <laughs> no, never anything <laughs> you You and I
1: have never had this discussion on, on a podcast about how things uh, that can be delivered with other technologies might be better delivered with other technologies.
0: So, Gulu Atak, who's Global Head of Innovation for Treasure and Trade Solutions at Citibank, said, Based on our learnings from that experiment, we actually decided to make meaningful improvements to the existing Rails. By leveraging the payments ecosystem and within that ecosystem, we are considering what fintechs and as well the regulators around the world, including SWIFT, can do to improve our services. So they did a thing with blockchain and realized they could do what they were already doing better. This is quite a different strategy to JPMorgan, Morgan, however, who are you know, pushing ahead with the JPM coin. Um, why do you think that JPM and Citi have come to different conclusions here? Is, is there anything that comes to your mind?
1: I I think um, J, JP's always kind of had a, an J P Morgan has always kind of had an interesting approach that they it was very research and analytical, um, and I think that they have much deeper designs than necessarily City has tried to embark on. City's kind of taken this more from a venture and how can I fix things point of view. And if that's the approach you want to take, uh, absolutely one hundred percent go out and take technologies that have already proven themselves in the wild. Um, uh, If you are trying to look at where there's greater things, where you're worried about um, bigger long-term threats, um, understanding these technologies, doing research, and not looking at it as uh, a purely VC point of view is probably also a good approach. But uh, too many people have tried to kind of be in the halfway house between those two approaches.
0: You see this a lot with big banks who have the innovation labs and the VCs who sit Kind of external to the core operating divisions, and they they spend a lot of time trying to build processes. And I know um, Citibank has their DX10 process that you know that, that they're very proud of, which is uh, how they sort of have these internal uh, funding rounds and this internal VC like approach to getting products and services off the ground internally. Yeah, which is pretty smart, and they've actually delivered a lot of things meaningful for customers. But you tend to get uh, incremental change, which is what you see here, versus something that's more of a step change when you when you're able to to do something a little further outside of the organization, but you you can never be half pregnant with these things. It's either outside or it's all the way inside, right? You can, you got to make sure that if, if something has a mandate, it has mandate and it can execute. Um, you see, I think a lot of times the city strategy appeared to be more defensive. Um, a, a, similar to bank of America, they focused on patents and what they could invest in. Um, whereas JP Morgan have really kind of got engineers and, and product people and started building um, and generally, we talk to clients a lot of that, about that as well. Is like, how do you actually build? What's the minimum thing you can build um, that would prove that this would work? And can you get to see if a client would buy it, which is, which is exactly what a startup would do, right? You, the way you get something is by getting customers and selling them a product. And I think JP Morgan started at a at a different set of problems, which wasn't how do we improve the existing system? It was, what would we do if we started with a blank sheet of paper? What problems might we solve um, that can't be solved within the existing system? Which comes from a basis of really understanding the existing system. My observation is a lot of people started at blockchain tech and then used that as an excuse to learn how banking works Um, rather than coming from, hey, I know a little bit about banking now. Uh, What would I do if I could start again and how might this technology help me do it? I I think that sort of blank sheet of paper approaches, maybe why JP Morgan ended up where they did, and having the mandate to be able to do that, which not a lot of banks have the luxury to do, I truly believe. Yeah,
1: no, absolutely. And I will say it even simpler. I think if your your main goal is how do I improve uh, the efficiency of a system, don't use an emerging technology. You will never save money. If you're trying to go out and create brand new things and not reintegrate, I think this is how David Breer always says, you know, reintegrate and die. Uh, if you're trying to go out and do moonshots, sometimes they'll work and sometimes they won't. But when they do, it's magical. And that's that's kind of the startup agreement here.
0: And I, I think that's an interesting point, right, isn't it? Is is if you do something external, the cost of doing it dramatically decreases, therefore... Um, you know, the the risk goes down with it. So if if it's going to cost me, uh, you know, you see these headlines all the time about banks spending billions on on tech change, but that's to keep the lights on and to change the existing real estate. If I have to do something greenfield, then the cost comes down dramatically. So if that thing doesn't work, then my risk has come down dramatically as well. And And I could have a portfolio approach where, yes, I've got to do the things that are about efficiency inside the organization, but why wouldn't I be doing things outside the organization like a JP Morgan coin um, that are towards the edge of the organization that cost less to get off the ground but don't assume that I'm necessarily going to always bake it right back into the very, very core. Or if I do, I do it a a slightly different way. Um, And then you use things like access to your client base as a way to do it. We saw... Uh, as many will know, our sponsors uh R three and Corda did settler and they 've done that with swift um, that 's this interesting halfway house where um you could use something like swift g p i uh, which is which is kind of a new product from Swift that solves some of the initial problems you know we talked about on the show before with with payments about not knowing when a payment 's going to get there and how much it 's going to cost to to get there. Uh, with, a, with a really clear oracle, to use blockchain terminology, that says this is where it is, this is how long it'll take. Um, and then Court of Settler is designed as, as a way of really just managing uh, a workflow across um, a shared business network like a, a trade finance network or uh, you know, an FX network or something else where you've got these contracts that are becoming payments. And, and that's an interesting place to play too. And it's
1: even more interesting, is that a blockchain application firewall?
0: <laughs> oh, we got to talk about that, BAP. Um, this re- this episode is brought to you by R3 Blockchain. It's not just for FinServ. is it, Colin?
1: No, it is not. We're going to hear all about more, uh, more uses, aren't we, Simon?
0: We are. Tons of industries can reap major benefits. Insurance, healthcare, pharma, automotive, you name it. Uh, discover the potential of blockchain for your business with R3's Quarter platform. Uh, their platform offers privacy, interoperability, integration, and consensus. Plus, it includes that thing you talked about, the mission-critical features every complex business needs, and... The world's only blockchain application firewall. The Corda Platform, blockchain for every business in every industry. Head to r3.com to learn more. And uh, look out for Todd McDonald when you're there. Shout out to friend of the show, Todd McDonald. (laughs) Hi, Todd. We need to
1: get them back on to explain this blockchain application firewall again. I know we had an interview with Mike Hearn, but a lot of people have been asking.
0: Yeah, we we really do. Already, um, next story comes from the block uh, crypto dot uh, Sibo have halted their Bitcoin futures, considering, uh, conceding market to the CME. So, Sibo CME uh, futures. Colin, like, let's bust the jargon and then get into this one.
1: Oh no, we're keeping with the jargon. So the the Sibo is the uh, the options exchange in the U.S. primarily. They own a futures clearinghouse, um, basically. After you trade an option, what happens behind that, um, particularly for their VIX contract? So, this is the volatility index in the United States tracking the SP 500. You're still keeping all this jargon in here. Um, they, of course, launched the, the first Bitcoin futures um, shortly thereafter, the CME, which is the Chicago's uh, mercantile exchange, which is known for the SP 500 future uh, and has a much larger clearinghouse which covers many, many things, including commodities, interest rate derivatives, FX derivatives, all kinds of other great things, um, launched their more widely used uh, Bitcoin future. Um, They came within about a month of each other, and right at the top of the market, Um, So CME announced that they had a a very good January uh, and Q1 was looking quite good for them. SIBO had a slightly different design of their contract. We talked about these when they came out. Um, So in short, the CME tracks the price of Bitcoin on four different exchanges and weights those. SIBO tracks uh, Gemini's auctions at the end of the day. And uh, you trade against that. Uh, One of the problems being that has very low liquidity and very susceptible to being uh, gamed. Uh, So they have just announced uh, after kind of muddling along that they would not be immediately listing new futures on the SIBO. However, the CME will keep going. Um, So I wonder if this is uh, purely a contract design thing and they're going to go back to that or whether they've decided that this business is not something they're going to own.
0: It's going to be interesting to watch. Uh, There's... Definitely a question about uh, you know, whether or not this is gonna get any better or worse um, if, if there is just one game in town. And that decline of 80% volume since early 2018, um, this is the, the like, despite all the evangelism around Bitcoin, the dirty secret continues to be, there's just no demand. Like, it's, it's pushing something uphill. Uh, on the institutional side, there's definitely interest in, hey, like, if you were to create a, a natively digital token and you were to trade it and it were to look and feel uh, like a token and it were to be something that had some of those properties of direct custody, as, as you have talked about a couple of times, that's exciting. But this asset itself intrinsically doesn't seem like there's there's always that talk about like uh you know be your own bank and the digital gold narrative and peer-to-peer decentralized cash but consistently the market isn't buying that and no matter how much hype there is around it signals like this are really really important to to pay attention to because if the market was going to buy it you wouldn't have a headline like this
1: yeah i i think i mean it's a bit square block round hole uh, type thing um, it, it was a poorly designed product from the beginning. Um, CBOs is, or sorry, CMEs is slightly better. Um, but I mean, you still have a massive basis risk, basically a risk that uh, you might be holding Bitcoin and hedging it with a future so that if the price goes up or down, you don't lose any money um, or lose less money. But there's a risk of uh, that the future could move away from the price of what you're actually holding. What you need is a physical future, um, meaning that Rather than Simon and I paying each other dollars based on the price going up or down, we're sending each other Bitcoin based on the price of going, Bitcoin going up or down. Um, the problem is uh, you need to go through a lot more regulation, uh, which means you need the C- uh, CFTC to come in and say yes or no. Um, lots of banks push back against this. So it's very unlikely in the US right, right now, or at least in 2017 when these things came through, that uh, that would have gone through. So I, I think that maybe the CME and the SIBO were moving too fast for their own clients. Maybe, as you suggest, the the demand, at least within the interbank market, isn't there. Um, or, you know, maybe it's just a, a question of, should these really be trading uh, right now in these types of uh, venues, or should the the venues which have made huge successes out of it from smaller venues be the ones that uh, kind of push the market forward and eventually it comes back?
0: Well, yeah, and that's a fair question, right? Are you going to expect to see that the incumbent exchanges and futures exchanges are the ones that do well, or is it going to be somebody new that comes along? uh always fair to try and play with that idea uh, you know it's it's not uh blockbuster didn't get digital um netflix happened so you know is is, is there going to be something like that um but also you know related to this I saw that backed um have not received the, any sort of regulatory approval to move forward and you know initially they were going to launch in january and then it's question mark and now it's delayed indefinitely uh, this is a, that was a project that supposedly has, what, $130-odd million dollars behind it. So there's a, there's a slug of cash to go do a thing, but actually there's nothing being done. Um, imagine if you took that slug of cash and went, right, uh, let's just go talk to customers and figure out what problems need to be solved and then build whatever the answer to that question is. It's, it's a crazy idea, I know. Um, yeah. Crazy idea. No, Simon, we always start with a solution and work backwards. Oh, okay. That's what I've been missing all along, right? Yeah. Just well, today I learned. Um, you know, today it, you it, learned. It. Today we've all learned. Uh, (laughs) Everybody's doing it backwards. Something here today, Colin. Um, If if there's nothing else, you can take that with you on your commute. Um, All right, listeners. uh, The main story this week uh, comes from the Australian Financial Review. Um, So this one really is all about what's happening with um, the ASX, the Australian Securities Exchange. Uh, And of course, for some time they've been talking about replacing their chess uh, system. Uh, Do you want to just give a little history to what chess is, and uh, you know, sort of some of the some of the players involved in this one?
1: Oh, awesome. So um, Chess is the uh, clearinghouse engine uh, that sits behind the Australian Stock Exchange, the ASX, um, that helps when you are in Australia trading equities um, at the ASX. It helps kind of that that clearinghouse process that we talked about at the CME. Um, I pass you uh, an equity and you pass me cash. Um, And it it, um, helps us match all that stuff. So essentially... Uh, it was, I believe, the first automated uh, program to do that, the first uh, digital, if you want, uh, and is quite old and out of date. They wanted to up, upgrade that. Uh, they did a, a big beauty show of different possible solution providers and decided to go with Digital Asset Holdings, who uh, was proposing a, of course, DLT-based solution.
0: And Digital Asset Holdings, for those that have longer memories, of course, uh, have the recently departed Blythe Masters as their CEO. Uh, Blythe was, of course, seen for some time as as uh, one of the key proponents of DLT technology to the banker world um, and sort of seen as, as the face of credibility towards the banker world in, in, in many ways. Uh, so uh, kind of… That, uh, that progression has been uh, something that people have followed with interest because it seemed like an example of a major market infrastructure provider uh, in Clearinghouse doing something major with DLT uh, with, with most of their banks. But um, it seems like this story says, um, you know, at least for some actors in that market, all, all is not well.
1: Yeah, I, I think there's one one way to call it, at least the way that the AFR has suggested the article, uh, the report was worded, and, and it's damning. Um, I, this is exactly what we were talking about in the last story. Uh, the The worry is, and, and Simon will pull all kinds of caveats around this, uh, the worry is that um, they decided to go and try to fix a problem with a new technology um, in something that worked, even if it was old and maybe needed an upgrade, um, but didn't necessarily depend on the strengths of that technology. It was more because, well, we can get that technology in, we might as well. Um, I I have a lot of uh, sympathy for the group. I think that there's very smart people working at uh, a digital asset and at ASX. Um, Maybe this is just as simple as uh, bringing stakeholders along with their vision, because it seemed like at least the report suggested that uh, people didn't really know why this was being done and if it couldn't be done in a more simplified manner.
0: So it plot thickens, of course, Colin, because uh, the the authors of this report are of course Deloitte, uh, Deloitte, one of the big uh, consulting and audit audit firms globally, uh, and it appears that the partner here had been asked by a number of their clients to to look at you know uh, had this process been followed correctly, um, you know had uh, had ASX uh, been pushing for the right outcomes or was was it something different? Um, but of course, uh, their clients in this one uh, appear to be to be an interesting bunch. So of course. Deloitte, we know, had invested in Settle And of course, the client were CompuServe, uh, who were looking to potentially work with Settle, and also are one of the major share registries who, of course, play a role in the Australian market um, that can essentially covers for some of the gaps that Chess had created because it was uh, aging technology. So the, uh, the introduction by ASX of a more modern DLT platform would potentially remove the need for CompuServe in the market. It shouldn't surprise us then that CompuServe don't like that. Um, and would wish for a report by somebody else that's uh, independent, in air quotes, to to come along. And of course, these were the comments of uh, Peter Hyam, is it Hyam? Um, Hyam, yeah. Uh, who's the deputy CEO of ASX? So it feels to me like six of one, half dozen of the other. Um, but I guess uh, either way you cut it. Um, there's there's ambiguity on both sides, From from as I observe it from an outside observer. To me, the business case uh, appears to sort of make some sense in terms of like, this is an old system, we need a better outcome for clients. There's potentially a whole bunch of interesting things we could do, uh, being more capital efficient and uh, uh, kind of uh, making better use of, of clients' liquidity and banks' liquidity if we redesign this from scratch. But the business case for why DLT and why this particular way, uh, I don't think had been clearly articulated to all market participants. ASX would say, well, we've invited all of those to the working groups. You know, we, we've had a had a public uh, kind of uh, way of doing this as open fora and certain people haven't attended, but still... To the outside world, um, I'm not sure that that business case was really crystal clear. It appeared to be more, we need to do this, and the business case was secondary. Did, did you have a, a dissenting view on that?
1: I, I think I, I broadly agree with everything you just said. And if if our friends at ASX and Peter Hiram are listening, come give us a call and, and we'll uh, help you with this.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's um, – I mean, from my perspective – where this leaves me is, does this invalidate the concept of DLT broadly, right? Because this was the poster child project that everybody could point to and go, yeah, well, you know, they're all um, POC and they're all sort of um, not really that big. Except that ASX thing, that ASX thing seems to have legs. That's kind of gone now.
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, look, there's there's clear benefits from these technologies potentially in the future, Um, as we've been saying um, if you're trying to rebuild a process that works today even if it's a massive upgrade you need some very clear justification on why it is you're asking people to make massive changes and just saying it's new technology and if you don't get it it's because you hate new technology is generally not the most efficient way to win an argument Um, actually I would argue that it probably never wins the argument Um, people want to know what's in it for me and if it's Maybe you can play with it for free for a little while, or maybe it's cool and it's new and everybody might come onto it. It's very hard. So uh, we'd love we'd love to have a chat with everybody about this um, and and actually hear everybody's points of view, whether, whether they're uh, consultants trying to independently look at this, whether they're potential clients of ASX whether they are ASX or somebody else involved. Because, I mean, there, there's clear things that can be improved, whether it's this technology or another one. Um, very smart people involved in this, so I, I'm sure that it's not for lack of intelligence. But uh, clearly, uh, this article and the way it suggests the report is that it's not currently in the best-looking shape.
0: I, and I think that's it, right? If you're not winning the comms and the story piece of it, then that's on you. Um, like it's on you to articulate the business value for why you're doing it. And tech for tech's sake, isn't a good answer or shouldn't be the first thing that comes across. Even if that's not what somebody's uh, in, you know, subjective intent is, even if that's not what they're trying to say, that's what's coming across. And I think that's, A big, big problem. But if you were to flip this around, like if you were talking to um, people in FMIs and banks uh, that were in clearinghouses and so on, and you were to say, from the set of ideas around DLT, what are the business values looking like and why is it valuable? What, What does your elevator pitch for that really sound like?
1: I mean, look, what generally people are going to want from their market infrastructure providers, if they are a current client, and it depends on who they are, um, they want to pay less money. Um, They want things to be a bit smoother and have less screw-ups. So if you can create better technologies to deliver that, people aren't really concerned about what that technology looks like. If you can add them a new product and feature set that they didn't know about it, they might jump on that, they might not. But uh, like everything else, I mean, the first time you ever heard about an iPhone or, or a smartphone or whatever it was, did you necessarily jump on the idea of, oh, I could be doing all these things with apps? No, you needed somebody to slam that thing in your face and say, you couldn't live without this thing now after you experience it. What is the thing that uh, this replacement of chess is doing that delivers that value? I, I don't know what it is. I'd love to be able to jump out and say, it's clearly this, um, but I don't know that anybody's effectively articulated that one way or another.
0: And, and that's, I guess, the biggest problem. If you can't articulate that and you can't prove that, then surely the only focus should be that thing. Um, and, and I would argue that there are some uh, where you have network effects issues preventing that from happening. Um, there are some where DLT is thrown in as, as a piece of the puzzle, but isn't the only part. Um, I look at a lot of the trade finance stuff, right? I mean, with trade finance, really what you're talking about is getting away from paper, which doesn't look too different to the dematerialization of securities markets in the 70s. Um, you know, really, the value is getting away from paper. The fact that you happen to use an orchestrated workflow amongst a bunch of market participants um, to that trade finance workflow that happens to use DLT, that gives you some better cryptography, some interesting workflow options, and some deterministic computation in there. Well, that's quite nice. You know, Those are nice design choices to be able to make. Um, but it's, it's not, I started at, Blockchain. It's. I started at trade finance. Paper processes are wildly inefficient. Have a four percent error rate at least. Um, are the subject of massive global fraud. Um, you know, th- a good chunk of the cost of everything you can see, touch, and taste around you. If you're commuting right now, the vehicle you're sitting in, the chair you're sitting on, the phone you're holding, all forty percent of the cost of that comes from inefficiency in global supply chains. So, if you can really make those supply chains more efficient, that's a problem worth solving. But the way you do that is go great how do i solve the problem and where's the cost coming from who's feeling the pain and what could i do then where you end up six months later might involve some dlt it might not and in most cases it probably involves something like there's a really cool fintech called trade stream t-r-a-y-d stream and what they do is they take um, paper documents they OCR those documents and then they drive a workflow for a bank or a corporate um, on the back of whatever that document says and their error rate is already less than a human's. Like, that to me is the no-brainer starting point. Once you've got that in place, you can start thinking about, great, how do I orchestrate these workflows? So, like... The business case for reducing my error rate from 4% to 2% makes sense. Uh, if I could start to um, see the see these trades coming, I could then potentially do different things with financing. I could push financing not just to a supplier, but to the supplier's supplier. Therefore, I can do more lending activity. The business case for that makes sense. The business case for, hey, you should use some DLT in your supply chain doesn't make sense. So like, we've got to get clearer about our articulations, I think.
1: Yeah, and I, and I think that's a really good approach. And and I, I think the other way that I'd look at it, is I, I think there's there's even kind of a wider change, which is the um, when we talk about the advent of the car, I mean, cars didn't just change how we got around. They actually changed the shape of cities. Um, the idea of a suburb developed. Um, what is the suburb that comes up because of replacing chess? I don't think anybody knows. Um, but figuring that thing out and being ahead of that curve is the first thing that's going to help people by the vision you've got. I think that there is an opportunity here using these technologies, using new technologies to allow the people that are ultimately managing somebody's money fix problems for their client. And if if ASX doesn't know what their client's 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 problems are, um, maybe they should start asking that question.
0: There you go. Uh, What a crazy idea. Things go back to a human and a customer. I mean, you're just blowing me away with like the craziness today this is way off base i think it, we it's, should, it's not very bear, uh, bullish today is it uh, <laughs> it's, it's really not but i think it's realistic it's start at, start at customers and walk your way back which is which is just good advice generally um so now um, this is technology no people <laughs> uh, yeah we don't need no stinking people where's my lines of code um Already, stories we didn't have time to cover. Um, the Stellar Foundation have hired a Mozilla exec as their new CEO, and of course, we've seen a number of announcements from Stellar working with IBM, looking at uh, maybe working on international payments. So, uh, for all the things we've said about City and their coin, who knows? Uh, maybe Stellar ends up in there somewhere. Um, Story from Coindesk.com. MakerDAO weighs in a fourth fee hike as the DAI stablecoin remains below $1. Stablecoin's not very stable. Um, Let's just pause on that one. Please go back and listen to last week's
1: podcast and Rick Burton had a lot to say about Maker.
0: (laughs) Okie dokie. Um, episode 88, you know where to go. Um, decryptmedia.com, the SEC's crypto czar. Um, stable coins might be violating security laws. Um, you know, I mean, you know, sp- brand new information, not really. Uh, the block crypto uh, one coin indictment includes a securities fraud charge. <laughs> I mean, the- I feel like these two are related somehow. I'm I'm, I'm struggling with, with, with what that is. It also kind of reminds me of the first story that we, we talked about. Yeah, a little bit. Um, that BNB um, Binance Coin feels
1: maybe maybe I, I don't know. Um, I,
0: I couldn't say. I don't know anything about law. Yeah, that's, I mean, yeah, uh, it's it's almost like there's uh, there's eighty eight weeks of previous podcasts you can check on from. Uh, from from history and from the archives to see if there's any consistency in your message. Yeah, um, and generally four questions come to mind. Something about
1: um, investment in a common enterprise, something about management bringing profits. Uh, yeah, yeah th- these types of questions come to mind a lot.
0: A little bit. All righty, um, time for Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. <laughs> tweet of the Week comes from um, God, I have no idea how to say this person's Twitter handle. @CAS. Let's go with Elon Carlo. Yeah, okay, Elon Carlo, um, whoever that is. Um, Colin, uh, talk us through this one. So so this, this tweet actually came out and pointed um,
1: a big news that uh, some people covered, some people didn't. Uh, Tether uh, has changed some of the language inside of what they were doing. So Tether, of course, being a stable coin, we talked about these, um, that uh, was heavily criticized for potentially not uh, living up to its promise to 100% back everything they have with cash in a bank account. So this was, of course, the way things were worded on their their website for years and years and years. Um, as they neared, I think, two more than $2 billion worth of Tether in issuance, I think they were backed down to $1, one, one $1.5 um, They just last week changed the way that it was worded from 100% backed by traditional currency held in reserves to backed by traditional currency held in our reserves – Plus, uh, possibly other things which don't include that and and are actually just IOUs from other companies that we may or may not also control, Um, which has led people questioning this to say, hey, is this actually uh, an admission that you don't have all the money? Um, We'll see what it really means, but I I think it does pose a lot of those questions and doesn't necessarily help. So I, I do expect that at some point in the future, there will be a renewed push to better understand what these
0: things mean. Oh, my goodness. Um, Still doesn't feel like everything's come out in the wash on this one, does it? No,
1: no. But, uh, look, I I don't know that they've definitely committed fraud, um, but they've definitely admitted that uh, they may or may not have uh, cash in bank accounts that they control.
0: They've definitely admitted that they may or may not have cash. Yeah. Can we just examine what definitely may or may not means?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um...
0: (laughs) <laughs> um that will work for my sponsor. <laughs> uh, Alrighty. Um so Let's move on, because uh, for, the, for the listeners that are curious, uh, there's a number of jargon terms we throw around. We've talked quite a lot about uh, an organization called CLS. Um, this one's a really interesting one, because we had the good fortune of catching up with Kerry Dynastine, who's Regulatory Affairs Lead at CLS Group. And uh, you know, CLS are an interesting organization, Colin, and I think this is a good one to learn a little bit about, especially if uh, you're interested in the future of payments, how money really works, and how money flows through the global Financial system.
1: I'm here with Carrie Dinerstein from CLS Bank. Uh, Thank you very much for coming on today.
2: Thanks. I'm excited to be here. I've been a fan of this podcast since I think Bitcoin was below four thousand.
1: Excellent. Yep. The other day, right? You're, You're like an OG.
2: Exactly. Very variable G, yes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Could you tell us a bit about what you do and what CLS does?
2: Sure. So I'm Regulatory Affairs Lead at CLS Bank International, part of CLS Group, and we are the largest multi-currency cash settlement system, that's a mouthful. We settle foreign exchange transactions on a payment versus payment basis, which basically mitigates the settlement risk or the loss of principal involved in those trades. So we do that for 18 currencies. And we have approximately 71 members, which are primarily the largest financial institutions, approximately 25,000 of their third parties. And we settle, I think on average right now, it's between five to six trillion gross notional every day. (laughs) Yeah, so that makes us um, systemically important, a systemically important financial market infrastructure. And I like to mention the systemic importance. Not because, uh, you know, it makes me sound important, <laughs> but because, from my perspective, the level of regulatory oversight it comports. So we're regulated and supervised primarily by the Federal Reserve, but the board and the bank in New York. And we're also overseen by a cooperative oversight arrangement of 23 central banks. So um, it's a lot of oversight. There's a lot of eyes and ears on our on our operations. So um, anything
1: you want to do gets a lot of questions.
2: Absolutely. Okay. A, a lot of oversight, um, you know, for... and. And for good reason. I mean, if there were some type of incident that would happen at systemically important infrastructure, it could have a knock-on effect of the entire, you know, global market. So,
0: I, one of my favorite quotes ever was uh, David Russell when he was sort of um, discovering the whole blockchain space in 2013. Had an asset test for everybody. He would ask um, people who's CLS, and if they could a- answer that question cogently, he was like, ah. Then you know what financial services is. I, I should continue this conversation. If the answer was something fudged and they tried to make something up, uh, then, then he would kind of uh, pay a bit less attention. And what I think is interesting about that is now everybody gets to know what CLS is, so that you all become, you would all pass the David Rutter test.
1: Well, he's going to have to change his test.
0: He really is. <laughs> <laughs> There's another acronym that people talk a lot about
1: in financial services um, SWIFT. How do you guys interact with SWIFT? as a general idea.
2: Sure. So our settlement service, the the payment messages for most currencies, not all, they're actually sent over SWIFT messages. So um, either the ISO 20022 or the other standards. So they basically underlie the infrastructure. Well, they underlie the infrastructure that is the CLS infrastructure, so to say. Um
1: Okay, no, so that makes a lot of sense and I think that that brings a lot of clarity. So The cross-border settlement aspect, that's all in your court. The payments messages are things that are coming out of SWIFT and you kind of visit a two-way street.
2: Exactly. We work together. Um, We're not competitors. We work together to basically offer the payment versus payment settlement. They provide the messaging service and we provide the settlement.
1: So things like uh, DLT, cryptocurrencies, more on the DLT side, I'm going to go ahead and assume here, um, are things that you have been looking at potentially for a little while, um, things that you've done proofs of concept uh, that that have come out in the market. Um, Can you tell us just from a regulatory point of view, what does that process look like? you said you have lots of eyes and ears focusing on you. I imagine this isn't something where there's a couple of people sitting in a room going, great, I just launched this press release, everybody's going to try it.
2: Yeah. So, what you're referring to is uh, CLS Net. It's our bilateral payment netting service, which is actually um, it's actually a launched into production. So it's not a POC or a pilot. We launched it in November 2018, and it's a post-trade bilateral netting service. So it's intended for currencies that aren't settled in our settlement service. And what's important to note before I get into the regulatory process is that it doesn't involve actual payments or settlement. And there's no connectivity to central bank accounts, and therefore it's a it's a different type of service, and it comports a different level of regulatory oversight. Now, by the nature of CLS, um, you know, starting to research and look at all these other services, that doesn't mean just because it's not considered um, part of the systemically important financial market infrastructure as defined by regulation, still we are looked at, you know, by the regulators, and we keep them up to date of what we're doing. They're involved in the process. They ask questions, and they they have some oversight. And of course, there still is oversight with respect to our primary regulator. But it's a little bit different level of scrutiny when you look at something that's considered um, critical infrastructure. Like um, in the US, there's eight designated financial market utilities. Like there's certain standards that apply more comprehensively when you have that level of oversight. And then there's, I mean, but we're still a regulated entity. So the service is still subject to regulatory oversight, as it should be. So I'm not
1: sure if that answered. No, no, no that that makes sense. And and I'd I'd love to hear more about that journey of the types of questions and the types of process as a as a systemically important bank looking to put something into production or looking just to evaluate uh, the suitability of a proof of concept. What are the types of things that they they look at specifically of uh, regarding risk and regulation? If I want to do anything, what are the the common themes?
2: So I think. First and foremost in this area, the first step is really to discuss with the regulator what you're doing and to make sure you're on a level playing field in terms of the actual understanding of what's happening. Because I, I think one of the big difficulties in this space is, you know, there's a lack of understanding when this is new evolving technology. And I think the regulators, they've been doing an amazing job actually reaching out to private institutions, whether it's in connection with launching a product or just to research more generally to learn more about the technology. So this was obviously the first step to meet and explain what we're doing to show, you know, how the architecture would work, how the system would work. And then after that, I, I mean, it's not much different than traditional um, products with traditional technologies. They look at, you know, the risks to the current institution itself and the ecosystem generally. Mm-hmm. Obviously one of the most important areas right now is cyber risk. So of course they want to make sure that whatever we build is, secure from a resiliency standpoint and can withstand, a ca- you know, any type of cyber attack or incident. That's primarily a big area of concern right now. And then all other types of operational risks. But beyond really just understanding what the technology is, I would say it's not that much of a different regulatory process, at least mm. in this instance.
1: Okay. Um, can we switch and, and talk about cryptocurrencies a bit? Sure. Um is that something that CLS has looked at? Um, is that something that uh, regulators are are actively engaged in? How that might affect systemically important uh, systemically important institutions?
2: Right. Um, so I feel almost the desire to take out the money flower, which, for those of you who aren't familiar, is the uh, Venn diagram from the BIS that basically sets out a taxonomy of money. It shows the difference between. Yeah, uh, digital token, a virtual currency, yeah, uh, because the terminology could easily be confused. And, and I say that because when you say cryptocurrency, my immediate response is for CLS, no, that's not really on our radar. Cryptocurrency is really, you know, you think of consumers or, mm-hmm. um, you know, person to person, whereas CLS really focuses on financial institutions and transactions. However, um, if you're going to be talking about the broader class of, I guess, crypto assets, which may include different types of tokens, for example, tokens that could be um, you know used for even central bank digital currency or you know for settlement between institutions. Then of course, CLS is keeping up with market developments. There's no actual plans to put anything you know into production right now, but we obviously remain you know current with what's going on in the industry and the developments, particularly as they become used and adopted by our members and other large financial institutions. That's really what drives our um, investigation.
1: Okay, no, and that's that's a really interesting point. And one of the things that I, I've noticed, a lot of institutions are having a hard time engaging ultimately with their clients, um, mm-hmm. their members, or or customers. Um, can you tell us how firms, large firms like your own organization, smaller firms, should seek to work with regulators on DLT?
2: Sure. Well, I, I think it's important to first, you know, go to the regulator and explain what you're doing. And I think there's a lot more opportunity for that these days. You see in lots of jurisdictions, innovation hubs. Um, You know, a few years ago, there was just a few, I believe in actually the UK was probably one of the first you had the innovate. And now they're popping up around the world. And I've quite frankly lost track. So there's all types of innovation hubs. There's office hours. There's a lot of opportunities to really engage with regulators and, you know, participate in sandboxes where you can test out products without possibly the full weight of regulatory, you know, obligations, depending on the jurisdiction. So I think you know, if you have a new product, that would probably be one of the top recommendations that I would definitely suggest.
1: And as as some of these new topics are coming out and, and you've spoken with regulators, you've been involved mm-hmm. with sandboxes yourself, uh, is your impression with regards to DLT rather than the cryptocurrency side that we need a lot of new regulations or do things fit in the, the boxes that exist?
2: Well, it depends. If you're using DLT in connection with you know existing services business models the most regulators are really trying to trying to advocate an approach where you don't need to craft a new framework you could actually you know see how that framework and the application of the technology fits within existing regulation and really at the heart of that is the approach that is often referred to as technology neutrality or a technological neutral approach and that's regulate activities or services that use blockchain or or any technology but don't regulate blockchain itself that's not the financial activity or service. So I think it really depends on what activity or service at hand is. Now if you're talking about a new business model or something that's, you know, completely novel or different and may not be contemplated within the current regulatory framework, then that might require an entirely new or or amendments to existing frameworks because that's not ex- contemplated as part of existing frameworks, but
1: and no, that So me, I think
2: I think it depends yeah. on the context. I don't know if that was, you know, helpful answer. Depends on what
1: you're trying to do. But as as a default, if you're trying to improve upon an existing process or service, it may not be reinventing the wheel in in a regulatory space.
2: Right. And I think, you know, a really good example of that is the FCA put out a consultation, I, I believe it was in January, but I could be misquoting the date. And what they did was they looked at a wide range of different types of tokens so i think it was security tokens and utility tokens and and they determined well how would this fit within the current regulatory framework for payments for e money for securities and they looked at examples and it was a really excellent report because it was it was actually very useful it was very um there was a lot of examples and they showed how these tokens although many of them are a novel and new approaches they can fit within the current regulatory frameworks i think they're going to later look in eventually issue more reports on potentially expanding the frameworks because some tokens present problems. But I think there's an attempt at regulators not to reinvent the wheel in the first instance and not to regulate technology. And I think in a lot of respects, it's a practical point because if you look at the one hand at the rate that technology changes, and then you look on the other hand at the rate that regulation changes, what would happen is you would have, uh, by the time the regulations came into effect, it would be moot. The technology would have moved on. So, you know,
0: There's a classic there from Brian Quintens when we interviewed him, the Mm -hmm. commissioner at the CFTC, who said uh, they've actually gone back and looked at uh, existing regulations that um, stipulated or could have been read as rules that you have to use a fax machine in the management of certain Uh, asset classes. And and, and that is the risk of becoming too prescriptive about technology. And we don't want to do the same, I guess, in this asset class.
2: and, And that's a good point, actually, because I know the CFTC has been advocates of also looking back on your existing regulations and determining, well, Maybe the way it's written, because it wasn't contemplating new advances in technology, maybe there's an unintended effect of having an impact on future applications. So to the extent you must use a fax machine, for example, or something must be, you know, physically written and not, and it doesn't contemplate electronic messages then they advocate that regulators look back just to make sure that at the outset there's no unintended impact. Absolutely. Yeah. All
0: right. uh, Last question before we let you go. I'm really curious on your reflections on what has DLT, blockchain, crypto taught us? What should I, if I work in a financial institution, if I work in an FMI, if I work in and around this subject of financial services, what should I take away from this? What lessons do you take from from crypto and DLT?
2: Well, I don't know if it's a necessarily a, a lesson yet. But I think one thing I'm particularly focused on now is looking at the impact that new technology introduced by fintechs or, you know, large established technology companies looking at the impact that it has not in terms of technology, but the business models and the interaction with financial institutions. So we're seeing, I mean, unprecedented amount of cooperation between you know, startups and financial institutions that have been around for years. And and increasingly from the large. Technology companies, we are seeing them come into this space as well, and I think the lasting impact of that might be that it could have a profound effect on the market structure. So, to the extent you have, you know, new technology companies coming in and competing and and presenting, you know, models and really getting into the financial services, I think that really puts um, pressure on the financial institutions to really, you know, look at the co- to focus on the competition risk. And that also puts an interesting regulatory focus on the oversight of these new and these new players because a lot of FinTech's technology companies, they're not overseen by financial regulators. So I think there's concerns from that regard that you have services and activities that are that are taking part and they could have a systemic impact and present risk to the financial services industry, but they're beyond the scope of regulatory. You know,
0: they're outside it, of the perimeter for yeah, probably exactly. good reason historically, but it creates an all, a whole set of new questions. And if, if they're potentially coming into something that could be considered systemic risk or they're even a part of that value chain in some way.
2: Yeah. And I mean, there are currently requirements for institutions to manage outsourcing risk, vendor mm-hmm. risk. And I expect there's, there's going to be increasing focus in these areas going forward. I expect a lot more focus, you know. Not even just because, you know, the traditional cybersecurity concerns when you work with third parties, but also in terms of concentration risk. If you have, for example, a cloud service provider that's providing the same services to all different institutions, if there's an incident there, then that could have profound impact on the financial services sector. Or even conflicts of interest once you start seeing technology companies not only provide, you know, platform and infrastructure services, but then also operate those cloud services or, you know, or start distributing other services and being competitors and having different types of relationships with financial institutions. So I think that could present an interesting challenge for regulators on how to approach those relationships. And I think that's going to have to be a large area of focus for banks and financial institutions going forward.
1: Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you very much for coming on, Carrie. Can you tell us a bit more about, uh, if people have questions, how they can get a hold of you, where they can find out about you, and a bit about your newsletter?
2: Uh, sure. So I actually prepare a monthly regulatory roundup. Uh, I prepare it in connection with uh, post-trade distributed ledger group meetings. Uh, it's a industry association of banks and FMIs and with observers from trade organizations and regulators, and looks at you know the impact and regulatory implications of DLT in the post-trade sector. CLS publishes the monthly regulatory roundup on its LinkedIn and social media site. So if you follow CLS Bank on LinkedIn or Twitter, you'll have access, um, as well as if you follow me, uh, my Twitter handle is kdennerstein, D-E-N-E-R-S-T-I-N.
1: Great. Well, thank you very much for coming on today.
0: All righty. Thanks very much to Kerry. And thanks for Colin for, for leading us through a lot of that interview. That was a good one. Yeah. Very much enjoyed that. Thanks for coming on, Care. alright uh, Just to remind you listeners, this podcast is made by 11FS and we're a challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of financial services. We create digital propositions starting at the customer and working our way back. Uh, if you want to hear more Blockchain Insider every single Thursday, the subscribe button is right there. And if you're already subscribed, please, please throw us a review uh, on iTunes. Those reviews help us so, so much. Colin, uh, where can people find out more about you? In a field near France, generally not feeling too great about Tether? Come,
1: come to the field. There's, there's wine, there's cheese. It's a good time, generally. Or you can find me on Twitter, at Colin G.
0: Uh, is there Tether on Twitter? Uh, there is Tether on Twitter. They do have a, a Twitter account. Okay, well, there you go. And you can find me at sytaylor on Twitter or email me directly, simon at 11fs.com. If you have thoughts about what the future of financial markets are or how CIB could be better if we started at the customer. Uh, big or thank- you work at ASX. <laughs> or if you work at ASX. Um, big shout out to our amazing production team here at 11FS, producer Petra, and of course, Alex, our editor. Uh, thank you for listening. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye for now.